It is so good to see you guys. Can we thank these guys for leading us in worship this morning? Yeah. I hope that you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. This is the first day of Advent 2020, and I've got to confess to you, I grew up in a Baptist church without what we called Advent. And I would imagine I'm not the only one. If you grew up in a church situation that observed Advent, could you raise your hand? Okay, if you did not, could you raise your hand? Okay, so we're 50-50, as they say. Uh, The first time that I ever noticed it, I was at a church already on staff, and I did not know what was happening as we rolled out the candles. I thought there was a cult starting. Uh, But as we look at Advent, it's really the idea of anticipation, that we don't want to get ahead of ourselves for the sake of Christmas and and miss the, the idea of waiting, the notion of anticipation, Waiting for God, hoping that God would reveal Himself, hoping that we would see these various themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. This first week of Advent, we, we talk about hope. And as, we turn, as we're talking about that, I want you to turn to the book of Ruth. As you're turning there, we're going to have a conversation about a love story these next four weeks. The love of Ruth and her eventual husband, but I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. We know that this is a season where people like to celebrate love. There are three major players in the celebration of love in regards to corny Christmas movies. There is Hallmark, there is Lifetime, and there is Netflix. And I'm not going to judge you for whatever you watch, but just know that the story is basically always the same. The movie where some down-on-her-luck, spoiled, rotten, hotshot journalist returns to her hometown and reunites with this ragged Christmas tree farmer. Only for him to turn out to be stinking rich or a prince or the heir to the fortune of Duckburg, home of Scrooge McDuck. We see this story, these stories that try to build tension. And as they are trying to build tension, they attempt to show us hope. They attempt to show that hope is around the corner. From what I understand, Netflix is doing their best to build a shared universe of Christmas princesses. Gentlemen, if you do not understand a word I've said, that's okay. Just think Marvel movies, but with princesses. When we talk about Advent and hope, it reminds me of the words of J.I. Packer, famous theologian, who says this, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Now, as we look at the story of Ruth, I know that you're probably not clamoring for us to spend time with an old Jewish widow and her foreign daughter-in-law over the holidays, you may be trying to avoid in-laws altogether. But in sincerity, this story is one of anticipation. It, it displays for us this great story of God, that there are no dream In this story, there are no dreams, there are no visions, there are no prophets. There are none of the things that we would look for and long for. And we notice that sin is wicked and the world is broken. And God, here in this passage, as we read through Ruth, He seems to be hiding I would think for many of you, during a dark season, a difficult time of your life, there's a possibility, maybe, just maybe, where it feels like God is hiding. It feels like it's been 2020 since 2012. The idea that we can't see, can't know, can't sense God. In this story, their husbands are gone and there are no children to be found. Sin and its effects have bore down to the very root for these traveling people. Yet in this story, we see hope, we see peace, we see joy, we see love, and we see Yahweh preparing the way on this road. 
So if you've ever wondered if a faithful life is worth it, then Ruth is a really good story for you. If your heart has ever felt the pain of tragedy and you wanted to have some type of healing, Ruth is a great story for you. And if the mundane, ordinary nature of your human existence has ever caused you to ask about the purpose of God or even wonder where He is, then Ruth is a great story for you. Because in Ruth, God takes everyday struggles and paves this road. The Christian hope is this, that that circumstances do not have to define you because the hope of redemption will. And there are only two books in the Bible, when we read through, through the Scriptures, only two books in the Bible that are named after women. There is Ruth and there is whom? Esther. And in this story, we see mundane, everyday events woven together to tell a redemptive story. Read with me in Ruth chapter 1. We're just in chapter 1 today. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, tough look, and the other was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her, hus- without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food in Bethlehem. She left the place where she'd been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And now Naomi said to them, Hey, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could... Become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have another husband tonight and to bear sons, would would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my my life is much too bitter for you to share. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. And when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. If you're a note taker, we can break this passage really into three sections. One is verses 1 through 5, then we see troubles there. Troubles. Secondly, in verses 6 through 18, we see their travel. And third, in verses 19 through 22, we see the timely arrival. Really, just a clean outline for a pretty messy story. One more time. Troubles, 1 through 5. Travel, 6 through 18. And timely arrival. One more time. Back to chapter 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Uh, So, just for us to have a point of reference, the writer of the book of Ruth, whomever that happens to be, has said to us, let me give you a point of reference as to what's taking place. This is happening in the days of the judges. Now, for us to understand what that means, we have to consider that the book before this is the book of Judges, and it teaches us some things about the wickedness of the human heart. In the book of Judges, the summation of the entire book says this, in 21-25, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Your Bible may read, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, during the time of the Judges, so when we read this together, we see during the time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, when they were doing whatever seemed right to them, when they had no king and they were reigning and ruling in their own way. In those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the days of the Judges, and there was a man named Elimelech. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. So when we read that together, in the days when they had no king, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, you have Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. But he's about to do something that points out that this is contrary to who he is. Because Elimelech, my God is king, is going to go to a place where he probably should not go. And by probably, I mean definitely. He's going to go to the land of Moab. Moab is a bad place. It got started when Lot had an incestuous relationship in a cave with his daughters. It gets worse from there. The law forbade marrying women who served other gods. Yet what we have for the story of the Jewish people is they would get into trouble with Moabite relationships. Moabite women had a reputation for causing Israelite men to worship other gods. There are numerous stories throughout the Old Testament of Moab being a bad place, yet this man, whose name means my God is king, is going there, which lets us know this is just lip service to the idea of God being king. How many of us give lip service to the idea of God being king? How many of us are going to give lip service to that over these next four weeks? Thinking and considering Christmas things and holiday cheer that we're going to spread throughout the year. But missing the idea that Christmas itself is a celebration of what God has done, that God is with us. How many of us would say and declare that we believe God to be king, yet nothing about our lives and the way that we interact with other people says that it is, says that he is? The man's name was Elimelech, verse 2, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were apathites from Bethlehem to Judea. From from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and they settled there. You notice something taking place as you run through these first three verses. They were going to Moab. Moab. They're going to settle in Moab. 
They're going to live in Moab. Because as they moved towards this sinful place, it had not just become a place of provision, it became their new identity. It's happening in the passage. As you read through this, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite, wives as their wives, Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. And they lived in Moab about ten years. And then Malon and Chilion died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. And these two women who've been married to these men for ten years, they don't have children either. This is rough. And friends, let me be honest with you. This should be the end of this story. It should be the end of the story because we're in a world where men reigned and ruled over every single thing. We're in a world where the idea of being without a husband and being without sons is your story. Most of the Bible tells its stories to the eyes of men. This story starts like it's going to do that and then everything stops abruptly right here. Elimelech is doing what is right in his own eyes. He goes to Moab to be the hero and provide for his family, and he dies. Don't worry, these two sons that they have, they both die. As a matter of fact, their names. Names are really incredible to me when I read through them in the, in the Bible. Malon means the sick man. Chilion means to expire. So the sons of Naomi and her husband Elimelech mean the sick man and expiration. They're gone. These men who are supposed to save their mother, they're dead too. This is a terribly hopeless story that should be over before it even gets started. Because you've got a widow, and a widow needs help. A widow needs help because she has little value in this world. She means nothing to no one. The root of the word uh, is this Hebrew word, alum. It means unable to speak. The idea of the widow is the voiceless one. In the world of the Bible, the widow was the silent, quiet one. She has no voice. She has no legal rights. She has no way to respond to injustice when she is mistreated. And gentlemen, let me just, just include us in this story. Imagine if you put your wife in this place where she is voiceless... She has no power, and if she is mistreated, there's no one to take care of her. We are included in this story, this horribly hopeless story. When Naomi lost everything in Moab, it's doubly problematic because she's not only a widow, she's also a foreigner. She's living in a foreign land, and she's often, as we read through the Scriptures, she's compared to Job. You've heard of Job? He had troubles throughout the entire book of the Bible. But her situation is worse because at least Job was a man in a man's society. She's not even that. She's at the worst place she could ever be because she is a woman in this world. And widows are living reminders of sorrow and death. If you see a widow in this world, it is to bring to your attention death, despair, hopelessness. One commentator says this, The widow is and always has been a litmus test of how much theology we have absorbed and how much is just talk. God's story is one of taking broken, hopeless voices, people, and weaving them into His story of redemption. And God's going to do that with these widows. It reminds me, when I think about the notion of widows, the Salvation Army tree, we see those every Christmas. People love to pluck the children from the not literally the children, but the names of children from the tree. There are always the names of little old ladies all over the tree. 
we're not very far removed from forgetting the widow. We see this passage letting us know the troubles of this lady, the troubles of her daughters-in-law, as she is a foreigner, a stranger in a strange land. So she decides, let me head home. Because if I go home, things will be better. Six, she and her daughters-in-law, they set out on return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people and people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she'd been living, which was Moab, where she should have never been, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Verse 8, Naomi said to them, Hey, listen, ladies. Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. Look, you've done your part. You've loved your husband. You love my, my husband. We didn't have any children, so, so we're just going to go back. I'll go my way. You go your way. You do you, boo. Get over there. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. The word rest there, it's actually the word security. She just said to them, Hey, I want you and I, I want you to go. I want you to find security because I can't offer you any of that. I don't even have it myself. They said to her in verse 10, We insist on returning with you. Their names mean something too. The name Orpah, it means stubborn. It also means thick hair, as in Orpah with the thick hair. But we'll go with stubborn. You have stubborn Orpah. The name Ruth means refreshing or refreshment. They said to her, we insist on returning to you. But Naomi replied, she got stern, mother-in-law stern. And she said, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? At this point, we've just got to ask hard questions. If this is you and you're Naomi... What has to happen to shake your belief in the idea that God is actually good? If you're you, what has to happen to shake your belief in the idea that God is good? If this is you in the situation of Naomi, how do you respond to the tragedy, the hopeless nature of what's happening? Stubborn and refreshment. They're standing right there beside her. Return home, my daughters, verse 12. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned. Naomi reiterates the hopelessness of her life for them and tells these daughter-in-laws that don't have any life, just go back. One pastor says this, sometimes, his name's Crawford Loritz, sometimes God chooses to demonstrate his power by supernaturally changing our circumstances. That's what we would always love, right? For God to supernaturally do something to make things better. And other times, he chooses to leave us in hard, difficult places, but gives us his sustaining power, power of God present in both. Naomi here is referencing what's called the the Leverate marriage. A childless widow could marry the brother of her late husband to maybe have an heir. Which is kind of weird, but the Bible can be kind of weird sometimes. Verse 14. Again they wept loudly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her. When you put it that way, Naomi, holla, I'm out. Clung, though. You've got Ruth, she's clinging to her. 
It's the same word we find in Genesis chapter 2 where we talk about how the, the spouses should cling to one another. Clung is the same exact word. Naomi said to her, Look at your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her people and she's gone back to her, her gods. Follow her. Leave me alone. Because she's bitter and we've all been bitter. We've all wanted to be left alone. Naomi said this to her and Ruth replied, and you're going to love this because you know it. Don't plead with me to abandon you. Don't plead with me to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people, they'll be my people. And your God, he'll be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Naomi, I ain't going nowhere. I ain't going nowhere. Nothing. I will not leave you alone. This is a caps lock declaration by her. Your God is my God, and I hope that I'm right by following you because here's the thing. The Moab God is this cat named Kamosh, and his name means destroyer. So if you make destroyer mad, that can't be good. On top of that, we see the entirety of the idea of Hebrew hope tied to this passage. The idea that she would bind herself to this woman, tie herself to Naomi. We see the idea of clinging here. The word for hope in the original language means bound together. Though we don't see the exact word in this passage, the notion of clinging and being bound to someone is all over it. Now, if you are familiar with this story at all, you know it's telling us the story of this kinsman redeemer eventually named Boaz. Spoiler alert. But let's not miss the shadow of Jesus in this passage by the very witness of Ruth. That she would stand by someone in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their despair, and walk with them. We see them bound together. She has bound herself to Naomi and she has bound herself to her God forever. These words, these words that I just, they're meant to make you feel. That's why you use them in weddings. Side note, can, I mean, can you imagine, rather than saying these things to your spouse on your wedding day, saying them to your mother-in-law and father-in-law, like right after you pour the sands or the candle or you tie that knot or whatever kids are doing these days out in the wedding fields. Can you imagine that being the conversation? Because that's what she just had with her. Can I call you mom? I'd rather you not. 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The very person she bound herself to won't say a word to her. Maybe you've been walking through your neighborhood and you had cats start to follow you. And you look at said cats and you're like, I don't want you cats to follow me because I don't want cats to be here as on earth. <laughs> Maybe you pick up a pebble and throw them at the cats to make them leave. Naomi has thrown her pebbles at her daughter-in-law. Then you move from throwing the pebbles at the cats to ignoring them. And for all of you cat lovers, have you ever thought about not having cats? Uh, <laughs> Naomi ignores her. So you have Naomi who is heartbroken and hopeless. Ruth who has tied herself to her and has, left, has been left with a person who won't even interact with her. She has to feel pretty hopeless too. The two of them, they traveled until they came to Bethlehem, city of bread, that means. 
When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women, they exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Now, the name Naomi means winsome or happy, joyful. And you would think she would be winsome, happy, and joyful when she's with her husband Elimelech and she has her two baby boys. She's probably even happy at those weird Moabite weddings. She, she's probably, she gets it. Happiness is there, but, but she's no longer happy. The, the name Mara means bitter. I went to college in my hometown. And so, if you're unfamiliar, the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, it was a commuter school. It's not anymore. Which means that 80% of the population, when I was there, they, you lived in Chattanooga, you didn't really leave home, you just went to school there. But there would be people you went to high school with who would come back after they'd gone away to school and they had been enlightened by, you know, the metropolis that was Knoxville. When they left, they were wearing polo cologne and on their first Thanksgiving break, they smelled like patchouli. Uh, they've got a nose ring attaching their wallet. You're like looking at them like, hey, I, you, I, I, I recognize you. You look different. Naomi, in this passage, when she left, she's winsome. Everybody knew her. But when she rolls up, they're like, I, said, I think that's Naomi. She looks rough. She's bitter. She says, that's right. Call me bitter. The passage says this. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. To the point. I, want, I went away full, but the Lord, He's brought me back empty. Look over at Ruth and just cue the gym face from the office. Like, I went away full, I've come back with nothing, and there's saying Ruth. Nothing. I don't have anything. But Ruth's standing there. So if Naomi has nothing, that means that for her, Ruth is what? She's less than nothing. She doesn't matter to me at all. Naomi has nothing. Ruth is less than nothing. She stands there heartbroken. Heartbroken and hopeless. But the passage turns in verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess. Just to be clear, they're letting you know that she does not belong they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What is this teaching us? What does this tell us? What is this letting us know about this God? That He would allow His people to return to the house of bread in the midst of the barley harvest. Barley in Bethlehem is, gives a glimmer of hope because they've been in a famine. That's actually why Elimelech left. They were in a famine. Now the bread is back. And when we read of Bethlehem's bread coming in, how can we not think of what we'll really learn about the bread of Bethlehem? When we read in John chapter 6, when Jesus stands after feeding 20,000 people, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever go hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. How can we ignore later when Jesus says this, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
we see Jesus saying that he is the fulfillment of this passage. He is ultimately the one that this entire passage is pointing to. The entire part of hope in this passage is where we're going here. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, I don't want to kill the ending for you, but here's what takes place. She's going to eventually get married. And when she gets married, they're going to have a son named Obed who's going to be the father of David. So the idea of Judges chapter 21 verse 25 saying they had no king at the very end of Ruth chapter 4, we see the idea of their new king. But not only a new king, it is through the line of this king that the Messiah of the world will come. It is through this Messiah that salvation will be available to you and to me. The idea of God's eternal provision is extended to us, Gentile people, in 2020, in the midst of a world full of hopelessness and despair. We know that the hope of the world is still Jesus. It never has stopped being Jesus. God is weaving together, as Timothy Mackey says, the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. Nothing less than nothing standing there and they are looking and seeing that there is bread on the horizon. In darkness there's light. In famine there's bread. In despair there's always hope. And the past sins of Elimelech and the sons that are Kilion and Malon. The past sins and circumstances don't cancel out the future hope that God provides. Circumstances don't get the last word for the believer. Redemption does. And in this story, we've been waiting for a glimmer of hope that is a king who will give us a Messiah who is the redemption. And this passage has taken and said to us, I want you to ask this question. How is God at work in the mundane details of your life to show the hope of redemption? In your despair, in your hopelessness, in your difficulty, in your stress, in your chaos, in your hardship right now, how is God telling the story of redemption in the midst of your everyday normal struggle? Because do not miss that God is telling his story. He's in the shadows, but his fingerprints are all over it. Would we be storytellers? Sharing the hope of this Christmas story in the midst of anxiety, anticipation, worry, and waiting. Saying that we have a hope and his name is Jesus. And he has not left us to our own devices. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm going to walk with you in the midst. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This holiday time means different things for different people. I do know for me, if I'm not careful, I can go to places of despair and sadness, deep sadness. That may be you. And if that's you, I just want you to know that we love you. But more importantly, we believe that God, the God that we see in the Bible, that He loves you more. And he's not left you. 
He's called you to redemption. He's called you to himself. And he's, he's walking with you. Very much like we see Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law in this passage. If you've never trusted in what Christ offers, then you are on the other side of the difficulties of this passage. The death, the famine, the hopelessness that you see here, the despair, present realities for you. And I would pray that you would trust in Christ and, and realize His witness to, to carry you through and to be with you in the midst of that. Trusting Him doesn't make those things go away. It just tells you He's there. So if you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner. If you need someone to pray for you. If you're uncomfortable with that, feel free. Let me touch base with you later this week. We care for you here. And we want you to walk with the Lord and, and see His hope for you. Father, we trust you this morning. God, for those who are believers, I pray that you would build them up. Remind them of your witness. That you are your arrival, Lord. That you're, you're always giving us glimpses of your hope. I pray that we won't miss them. So, Father, I pray that you'll be with us as your people. God, for those of us who feel powerless, who feel hopeless, who feel in, in the difficult depths of life, who can see our place, our, our, see ourselves in the place of Naomi in this passage. Let us not push against you, but welcome you. We ask this in Christ's name.